0: Chapter seventeen of Idols by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter seventeen. The train drew up slowly beside the platform at Victoria, three quarters of an hour late. Hugh stood by the half opened door in a fume of impatience. He had telegraphed from Paris to Irene that he would be with her at eight. It was that hour now he must go straightway, for he had resolved to have speech with her that night, and further delay would render his visit untimely. A porter from the Grosvenor Hotel came running up at his call, and took charge of his bag and hold-all. Relieved of responsibilities of luggage, he pushed his way through the hurrying stream of passengers on the platform toward the cab-rank. But before he could engage a cab, he heard the light patter of hastening footsteps behind him, and his name uttered in a familiar voice. He turned in astonished delight. Irene! "'Another minute and I should have missed you,' she said somewhat breathlessly. "'You come to meet me? I I never dreamed.' "'Of course not,' she said with a smile. "'Your sex never does. Did you think I could receive you at Redcliffe Gardens? Your name is Anathema, there. I am only allowed on sufferance. I could not bear you to be denied the door. Besides, I wanted to see you. So I came.' "'And you have been waiting all this time?' men are brutes irene i did not think of it forgive me for what for your anxiety to serve me you were coming straight to me after a twenty four hours journey without stopping to wash your hands or take food that needs no forgiveness they had been standing at the spot where they had met he looked anxiously into her face it was singularly calm and tender though the eyes were a little weary and the past month had brought lines about the corners of the delicate mouth Wonder was mingled with his feelings of relief, for he had expected to find a woman broken down with trouble. Then his phrase about the dull category of common women crossed his mind, and he smiled. "'Where shall we talk, Irene?' he said, with a man's helplessness. "'Are you going to Sunnington?' "'No, it is too far. I am putting up at the hotel.' "'Let us go there,' she said, turning with prompt decision. "'Would it be wise?' said Hugh. She laughed, ever so little scornfully. "'A sweep is not afraid of blacking his fingers when he handles coal. I am past such conventionalities.' "'You are mistaken, quite the contrary.' "'I am not mistaken, Hugh,' she replied, with quiet firmness. "'Please let me have my own way in this.' He bowed in assent, and they walked on together. "'A private sitting-room?' "'That would be more comfortable.' There was a long silence on their way to the hotel. The reference to the subject of their interview was a touch of ice. Presently he asked, "'How did you guess that I should come to Victoria instead of Charing Cross?' "'You are Arrive 7.10. I looked in a Bradshaw. The Charing Cross train is time to get in five minutes later. Men haven't all the sense, you know.' The flash of her old bantering manner cheered him. He laughed a little compliment to her sagacity. "'I chose Victoria because it was nearer to you,' he said. They reached the hotel. Hugh explained his wants of the office. A waiter conducted them to a private sitting-room, switched on the light, drew down the Venetian blinds, and left them to the room's rather stiff and imposing comforts. "'You must be very tired,' said Irene, womanlike. "'Go and get something to eat, and then we'll talk. Do, to please me.' Her old solicitude and kindly intimacy. The upheaval had not altered her attitude towards him; Her steadfastness touched him deeply. You have a heart of gold, Irene,' he said, but he disclaimed hunger or fatigue and sat down in the saddle-bag chair opposite her, wondering at the peace of mind that these few moments of companionship could bring him in defiance of the devastating emotions at work below the surface. She pushed up her veil and regarded him wistfully. You are looking much older, your face has grown lined, and no wonder. "'What I have gone through is small compared with the ruin I have brought on you.' "'If it is in any way your doing, Hugh, you have brought me to the truth,' she replied. "'The truth?' "'Yes. I was living in a fool's paradise. I see now that disillusion was bound to have come sooner or later. Instead of the glamour disappearing bit by bit through unhappy years, it had all been torn off at once. Gerald did not love me. He is quite a different being from the man I loved.' "'I prefer realities to shams. "'I have arrived at the truth, and so I am content.' "'But he shall arrive at the truth, too,' cried Hugh, starting to his feet. he shall lick the dust before you, for the deadly wrong he wants to inflict on you.' "'I had no idea before I left. "'If I would seen him yesterday, when the news reached me, I should have—perhaps it is as well I didn't see him. "'Why did you send me away? "'Did you know at the time?' "'Yes,' she replied. "'I knew.' but I wanted to see whether it was merely blind rage, or whether time would bring a change. I thought it was better for you two not to meet in hot blood. I could have stopped it at once, given you back your happiness. Do you understand me so little? she asked, with an air of reproach. I could have convinced him, brought him to your feet, and I shall, to-morrow. For God's sake, don't! she exclaimed quickly. I must. He shall not drag your name through the mud of the courts. I should be a hound to allow it.' "'What can you do?' "'Prove to him where I was that night.' "'I was in a woman's company. Not in her arms, thank God. "'You are the first living soul to whom I have avowed it. "'Both of you shall know her name, and the reason of my silence.' "'No, no, for God's sake, no,' cried Irene again. He stopped short, checked in his outburst by her tone, and the intense earnestness of her face. "'Why not?' "'Do you think I could accept his apologies?' "'He would make reparation?' "'I would not have any. "'If his knowledge of me, of the love that I bore him, "'was not sufficient to clear me in his eyes, "'do you think it would be other than humiliation to me "'that he should be convinced by outside proof?' "'I enter only too deeply into your feelings, Irene. "'But it will put a stop to this unholy action. "'Do you suppose I can rest while it is hanging over you?' "'Listen, Hugh.' she said, with a half-smile. "'Sit down, and let us talk quietly. We have been on the emotional strain too long. I don't want this action stopped. I blessed the instinct that made you come to me first, so that I could tell you. I have never seen any transcendental sacredness in marriage. You know that well enough. I regard it as the social sanction of a man and woman living together. I would not live with Gerard again for all the world. It would also be his last desire— This is a blessed chance of sundering our lives legally for ever. There are no children to be considered. What public dishonor the divorce court can bring upon a woman is mine already. I have nothing to lose, Hugh, and all to gain. What have you to gain? My liberty, my own life. Remember that society awards less penalty to the forgiven wife than to the divorced one. I want no patronage of society she flashed out spiritedly. "'I am not a repentant Magdalene.' There was a long silence. Hugh lay back in his chair, his cheek supported by his hand, his brows knit in stern thought. She sat in more feminine attitude, slightly leaning forward, her eyes fixed on the simmering imitation Watto group on the far screen. Suddenly she spoke without diverting her glance. "'I was acting when I saw you last. It was an effort to be calm. Now—' I am genuine. Her serenity had been won inch by inch, a great nature defying woman's weakness that clung in bleeding desperation to the shattered illusions, finally routing it and planting its own standard on the abandoned citadel. The battle had been fought during the interval of utter solitude, yet not one without cost. She emerged calm, but weary and wounded and aching of heart, with loss of ideals and purpose in life. The committee of her beloved institution to which she had given so much earnest enthusiasm had written an ashamed and pained suggestion of her resignation. She answered almost within the minute of reading, paying bravely the penalty of her tarnished name. But the rapid dashes of the pen were like sword thrusts through her flesh. With Gerard standing by her side on the starry plain of sacrifice, she would have accepted such penalties happily for the dear friend's sake. But alone, with Gerard against her, she needed all her proud strength to bear the pain unfalteringly. She had conquered, however, and could face the present and the future undaunted. Love was dead and buried. It had been her life. She would find a truer meaning to the strange new life upon which she was entering. But first the old apparelings must be cast away, and she must go forth free. She longed for the legal dissolution of the tie that still bound her to Gerard. With a man's burning sense of wrong inflicted on the beloved woman, Hugh could not appreciate the intense earnestness of her desire. To divorce her was a deadly insult which made the barbaric man's fingers tingle to be at the throat of the insulter. Barbaric vanity, too, compelled his thoughts to the pitiable figure he would cut if he stood by silent and allowed this outrage to be committed. He shifted his attitude impatiently and tugged at his moustache. The woman read him and smiled. "'Whatever your secret is, Hugh, you must keep it to yourself,' she said gently. "'A man doesn't face death for a trifle. "'That woman's honour is still in your keeping.' Hugh felt the phrase like a barbed arrow. He snapped his fingers. "'That, for her honour, it was not in question. "'My own, if you like. "'I seduced no man's wife, nor dishonoured his children. "'I wrote you the truth from the prison. "'I can't tell you more without entering upon the story.' If you did, I should hold you false to your word, said Irene, and that you have never been. Let me know one true man, at any rate. I despise Fatima curiosities with all my soul. Tell me truly, you made a solemn promise of silence? Certainly. Then you must not break it. I couldn't accept my rehabilitation with Gerald at that price, even if I desired it. I accepted a far greater sacrifice from you, Irene, he said in a low voice. The tone brought the starting tears into her eyes. Impulsively, she rose from her seat, and threw herself on her knees by his side, her hands clasping the arm of his chair. "'Yes, Hugh, it was a great thing that I did for you. But gladly, Hugh dear, gladly. God forbid I should ever regret it. You could repay me by granting me any request I make you in the name of what I did for you. You could not refuse.' "'You have me in your power, really. My life is at your disposal.' Then you will serve me in the truest and deepest way by keeping faithful to your word and letting Gerard take this course undisturbed. Promise me he rose, raised her to her feet, and kissed her hands, bending over them in the courtly way that recalled vividly to her mind a similar action years ago when he had first pledged himself to her service. I promise he said, she smiled shyly and flushed in slight embarrassment at the recollection. "'I am glad you have come back,' she said. "'I shall feel much stronger. "'A woman must always have something outside herself to lean on. "'We are poor things.' Hugh protested. "'She was apart from other women. "'What woman alive could have come out of such an ordeal "'with her faith in humanity unshaken, "'with her queenly tenderness unhardened? "'What woman had the crystalline intellect "'that could remain undimmed by the soul's gloom "'and could pierce through it to the heart of things?' The man's pent-up passion squandered itself in hyperbole. He raised her to transcendental heights of greatness. She stood, with her hands clasped in front of her, her eyes following him as he paced the room passionately declaiming her excellencies, and felt an odd little thrill of something like happiness. Here, at least, was a man who believed in her, a genuine man who had given startling proof of heroism. Her clear intelligence rejected the rhapsody with an indulgent smile, but her woman's nature, thirsting for comfort, drank in the praise. The chime of the black marble clock on the mantelpiece warned her of the hour. She announced her departure. "'You will see me through this, Hugh? You are the only one left that I can trust.' "'The only help I can give you is inaction. The hardest for an impatient man.' "'You can talk to me and advise me.' where i cannot visit you i have taken a flat and busy furnishing in a few days i shall be installed there meanwhile you can help me to fix things straight if you will that will be material assistance things like that are hard for a woman alone it will make me almost happy and light-hearted again he replied they moved together towards the door at the threshold he paused and regarded her earnestly "'Will you tell me one thing, Irene, before we part to-night, frankly and honestly?' "'What is it?' she asked, with a sudden flutter of anxiety. "'Is it possible that all this ruin I have brought about you has not changed your feelings towards me, turned them ever so little to bitterness?' His heart leapt at the quick radiance that came into her face. "'I have never felt till now what our friendship really meant.' He had awake for some time that night, lost in a great wonder at the staunch steel of her nature. Here was one who had lost everything the world held dear—husband, home, good repute, society, work—all through him, a once-rejected lover, on whom she had bestowed her friendship for her husband's sake, and a word of regret had never passed her lips, still less a word of reproach. Her old, loyal friendship had come bright through such a test stains and fouls the fairest comradeship between man and woman. "'Did the earth elsewhere hold humanity so transcendent? "'The commoner needs of the bruised child of clay "'that might have suggested the solution, "'the man forgot in his adoration. "'Up till now she had been the great and hopeless love of his life, "'to which he had been ever loyal in thought and word. "'Henceforward she was to be the divinity of his impassioned worship. The deified being, unconscious of her apotheosis, but only feeling a heartbroken, weary woman, cheered by a dear and loyal friend, reached her home and found two letters awaiting her. She took them to her bedroom and sat on the edge of the bed to read them. The first, a large packet, contained a collection of tracts and religious leaflets. She was about to throw them aside when the, her eye caught a flaring title The Woman Who Sinned and Was Saved. The other pamphlets bore analogous inscriptions she flushed hot with wrath at the outrage then rose and tore the insulting papers across and across in a frenzy of indignation and threw them into the grate the request of the committee had been a social necessity to which she bowed her head in resignation the insult of this anonymous evangelist scorched her forgetting the other letter she proceeded to undress anxious to get into the darkness and lay her burning cheek upon the pillow She thought fiercely of Hugh, of the savage joy it would be if he could find out and horsewhip the offender. But before she extinguished her light, the second envelope caught her attention. She broke it open, setting her teeth against fresh humiliation. She read the letter, then sat down on the bed and began to cry, like a foolish woman. It was only a little note from Mrs. Cahousack, urging with delicate tact the claims of her friend. Hugh did not seek out Gerard. Days passed. At last they met one morning at Sunnington Station. Hugh marched up straight to him. "'You are a pretty blaggard, Gerard Merriam.' Gerard drew up his big frame and returned his old friend's keen gaze with a stare. "'And you?' "'I am an honest man, and in your heart you know it.' "'Honesty is a relative term.' "'and you know that your wife is a pure woman. "'Who meets you on your arrival in England "'and spent hours with you in a private room at an hotel?' "'Have you been setting spies on her?' asked Hugh. "'I follow the usual course adopted by men in my position.' "'The district train dashed into the station. "'Irene was right,' returned Hugh, turning contemptuously. "'You are not worth trying to convince.' "'They entered different compartments,' Left the train at different stations, and for some years did not meet again face to face. End of Chapter 17. Chapter 18 of Idols by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. CHAPTER Eighteen. The Months Passed. The decree Nyssae was pronounced, in due course, made absolute. It was a period for Irene of entire calm and repose. The strong soul braces itself to stand the storm of great events. In the dull after-time it yields to the beseechings of the exhausted flesh. Day after day, Irene read, and thought, and rested, scarcely desirous of other pursuits. Her outlook over men and things was narrowed within the horizon of an invalid or a prisoner the waves of life beat unheeded against the fortress of her seclusion. Her servant, Jane, who begged to be taken into her service when the Sunnington establishment was broken up on Gerard's going abroad, the Hussacks and Hugh were the population of her universe. During these months of reaction and physical and moral apathy, she desired no more from life than immunity from its stress. An ample income, her own heritage, kept her assured against material cares, and the need of work for its own sake was stifled by the much greater need of self-reconstruction. And even after the healing of torn fibres, she loved the soothing calm of her lethargy. Then, suddenly, a slight shock from the outer world gave a necessary stimulus. Hugh came to her one afternoon, in great excitement, brandishing an evening paper. "'The mystery is cleared at last. They have found the murderers. As I said all along, a common sordid burglary.' The discovery of some burglar's tools buried in the wood behind the lindens, coupled with the fact that, at the time of the murder, two well-known ticket-of-leave men had failed to report themselves, had put the police on the track. The miscreants were captured. Irene revived, devoured greedily during the succeeding weeks, the newspaper reports of the case the wretches confessed during their trial, were eventually hanged. In spite of her own public disproof of Hugh's guilt, she had never been able to free herself from the horrible feeling that he still walked before the eyes of the world under the black shadow of suspicion. This was eternally dispelled. "'Did you ever think it possible,' said Hugh one day, "'that I might have done it, in a fit of anger?' "'You would have given yourself up and faced the consequences like a man,' replied Irene. When he mused, a while later, on the saying, a queer feeling of pity wove itself into his thoughts of her. If she could only see mortality in those upon whom she bestowed her affection or her friendship. The awakened spirit of the woman rose with a hunger for fresh interests. To one with a keen mind, a fervent heart, and a full purse, London offered no lack of occupation. Gradually she gathered round her a little array of charitable duties, which he performed in quiet, unostentatious fashion. Again, the years of happy labour had borne ripe fruit of knowledge. She showed Hugh one day an article which he had written on some unrecorded facts of infant mortality. In his enthusiastic way he bore it off to an editor of his acquaintance, who took it for his journal. It was the beginning of a series of articles signed Delta that attract considerable attention. Thus Irene found a vocation. But, being a very human woman, she sighed occasionally for that which she had surrendered, and for the comfort that came not. One afternoon, Harroway stood in the street, comically perturbed, watching the retreating figure of Hugh, who had marched away in great wrath. He shrugged his shoulders and returned to his office, but the perturbation remained and accompanied him home. It was his usual experience of Hugh Coleman. The man was like a cigar that smokes mildly and comfortably until, piff-paff, with awful unexpectedness, some maliciously secreted gunpowder sends the thing to smithereens. Thus Haraway summed him up to his wife during that evening's dressing-hour, while he tied his white tie. The imitations of the explosion, interrupting the operation and endangering the cambric, brought down conjugal rebuke. "'Your usual tact, I suppose, my dear?' said his wife, suavely. Hannaway waited, until the two little pats announced that he was well and duly cravatted, and then burst out. "Tact! If he had to humour Mr. Hugh Coleman, whom on earth was he to speak straight to? A man who owed his first brief to him, a man whom he had set his heart on making the most brilliant advocate of the day, who had egregiously disappointed him, a man for whom he was even now trying to build up a chancery practice. tact indeed! you said that so often, my dear,' said his wife. "'If only you would tell me why he exploded today, I might more readily sympathise with you,' Hadaway explained. "'He had been lunching with Chavasse, the artist. Talk had fallen upon Hugh and Mrs. Merriam. Chavasse, very broad-minded and kindly disposed to them both, had been talking the matter over with the Cahusacks. Mrs. Cahusac, of course, was unconventional enough to keep in with Mrs. Merriam, but Mrs. Chavasse was like Hadaway's own Selina, and drew certain lines.' Very rightly, interrupted Mrs. Haraway. Hard and fast. Marriage lines. Precisely, said Haraway. That's Mrs. Chavasse's attitude also. I uphold you. I'm fond of them both. I help Hugh all I can. Would help her if I could. But I'm not going to visit a woman my wife doesn't visit. And my wife doesn't countenance irregular liaisons. I'm old-fashioned enough to agree with you fully. Let them get married decently, and we'd stretch a point. So with the Chavasse's. One or two others doubtless would be ready to meet them. I dare say, Gardiner and his wife. Everybody is sorry for them. As sorry as they are for Miriam, somehow the luridness of the tragedy disposes people to forgive them. The man's pluck was heroic, almost an atonement in itself, said Mrs. Haraway. Almost, so was the woman's. But there is the eternal law, you know. Hundreds of women would be glad to meet Coleman. You would, Selina. Yes, she replied frankly. "'I should be willing to receive him, but he won't come. "'That's why I admire the man. He mixes with men. Of course he's obliged to. But he won't cross to the threshold of a woman who doesn't receive Irene Merriam. Miriam. He's a strong-willed devil, and he'll stick to that all his life. Selina, I wish to goodness I could believe the story she told Miriam. But it's beyond possibility, and the other is only too miserably human.' "'If you want to get to Mr. Coleman's explosion before the people come to dinner, Algernon, you'd better make haste,' said his wife, fan and gloves in hand, advancing with the calm of buxom years to the ottoman where he was sitting. "'It will take you half an hour to put on your new gloves, my dear,' he retorted. He emphasised the fact of their newness, because he brought them home with him that afternoon. "'So like a man,' murmured Mrs. Haraway. "'Well, sit down, and I'll tell you,' he said. "'making room for her on the ottoman. "'She sat and busied herself with the gloves, "'and Haraway relapsed into narrative. "'In the middle of the discussion with Chavasse, in walked Hugh. "'The restaurant was one of his usual haunts. "'Sat down at their table and talked about things in general "'in the charmingest of moods. "'One would have thought him the mildest man of man, like Lambro.' "'Like who?' said Mrs. Harraway. "'Don't interrupt. We haven't time,' replied Haraway with a chuckle. "'He resumed.' Chivas went away, leaving him alone with Hugh. They had coffee, liqueurs, and cigars. things very comfortable. Hanway inquired after Mrs. Merriam. She was well though of course, feeling the quietness of her life. She was writing on social subjects under a pseudonym and was making a little reputation. but it was bitter for her. Here was the chance. what need of tact? Why didn't he marry her? Hugh twirled his moustache. Selina knew the way, it began to look dangerous. He supposed that that was what everybody was asking. There was no question of marriage between them. Never had been. Never would be. He drank off his coffee, threw away his cigar, and put his hands in his pockets. He worshipped the ground she trod on, said he. will give up his life for her any day, but no idea of marriage. Why not? said Mrs. Haraway, wide-eyed. I don't know. How could I? I said it was his duty. Replies that he knows where his duty lies. I suggest that society demands it. "'He damned society. I get him to listen to me, tell him about Chavasse. He looks at me with those blue saw blade eyes of his, just as he looked at Hannah at the trial. "'It's for her sake,' I said. Pardon an old friend's bluntness. "'Of course I pardon anything you choose to say. You know that well enough,' he replied. "'So I went on, told him that every woman in her position was not offered such a chance of social recognition.' He calls the waiter, tosses in some silver, waves him away with a lordly gesture as he fumbles for change, and gets up. I accompany him to the street. "'It's very good of your wife and Chavasse. Tell them so,' says he. "'But I'm not going to do it.' "'Well,' I said, "'it's scarcely honourable, Hugh.' Whereupon he grips me on the shoulder—the rheumatic one, my dear. I feel it now, and balls out, "'Damn it, man! If you think me an infernal blackguard, say so at once!' "'I was nettled, also in physical pain, so I did say it. "'And then he gave his shoulders a shrug and stalked away like a madman.' Mrs. Haraway looked at him demurely. "'I suppose you think you managed it all beautifully?' Then she laughed, but Haraway got up indignant. "'Hang it all, Selina!' he exclaimed. "'I did expect a little sympathy from you.' Whereupon she mollified him, so that he should eat his dinner with an unruffled mind and thus avoid indigestion. A wife's thoughtfulness is often very far-reaching. Meanwhile, Hugh had marched away in great wrath from his friend and benefactor. A man in a false position is apt to be unreasonable. I should have taken it for granted he was acting honourably to Irene. Society generally ought to take it for granted. The irony of his friend's kind suggestion was a red rag to his anger. Marry her! It was a palpitating vision of a paradise in this world for which he would cheerfully accept damnation in the next even were he not tied to minna for life and were free to ask irene sheer honour and loyalty forbade him to go to her with protestations of passion she did not love him in the common way of women thus there was a double barrier to the fool wish of that composite fool society and the maddening part of it was the impossibility of saying the words and bringing forward the proofs to convince it of its folly. If he had loved her loyally through her married life, he loved her now with a new reverence. A new sacredness had arisen in his conception of his attitude towards her, such as had not hitherto invested his thoughts of women, and her influence had made itself felt in his workaday life. He had vowed he would never again plead in a criminal court, and had kept his vow. He was struggling to carve out a career in chancery practice, He had to supplement his income with irregular journalism. It was a hard battle, but he was not a beaten man. If he needed stimulus, there were flashing goads in Irene's eyes. On this evening, he had arranged to dine with her at seven. It had just struck the hour when he arrived at her flat in Kensington. Jane, who opened the door, greeted him with a smile, hung up his overcoat, and showed him into the drawing-room. Irene threw down her book beside her on the sofa, and wrote in her quick, impulsive fashion. "'At last! You are two minutes late! They have been tedious!' He looked at her, his eyes strangely blinded. The gradation from her customary laughing tenderness into something tenderer had been imperceptible, perhaps to her as much as to him. "'A welcome like that is sweet after a day's work,' he said, "'and I haven't seen you for forty-eight hours.' "'Very dull ones, I assure you. I have striven to improve them. A harder task than the busy insects. Gathering honey out of blue books, he indicated a couple of government publications lying open face downwards on an armchair. Horrid things, cried Irine, pouncing on them and stowing them beneath a chiffonier on the other side of the room. I am tired of them. Let us be happy this evening and forget their existence. A glance of surprise questioning met her. Usually she was eager to talk of her pursuits. "'I have a great need of happiness, you know, Hugh,' she continued, rather defiantly. "'I could suck up an ocean of it, like an infinite sponge.' Then she laughed, and, turning away to her writing-table, swept the loose sheets of manuscript lying on it into a drawer. "'You see, I'm beginning to cultivate nerves.' He watched her somewhat anxiously. She was looking pale this evening, and her grey eyes were more lustrous than usual. A faint pearl-coloured gown, unrelieved by a spot of brighter colour, accentuated the delicacy of her face. "'You are overworking yourself, Renee. Needlessly, you want a holiday, a change to sunshine and blue skies.' "'I want my dinner,' said Irene. "'Here it is.' Jane made a formal announcement. They went into the little dining-room, where the table was daintily set with flowers, bright silver, and glass. "'You are wrong.' she said quietly as she helped the soup i am not overworking myself i sleep like a top and haven't an ache or pain in my body still a change of air would do you no harm she assented with idle interest where should she go he suggested spain zarors not far from Saint sebastian on the bay of biscay fairly secure from english warm picturesque with the comforts of a civilized hotel from personal acquaintance he launched forth into glowing description. The golden sands and the purple seas of the south, the olive gardens with their shivering silver and green, the dark-eyed basques, the wealth of sun and colour. Irene lent her elbows on the table, and her eyes dwelt softly on him. "'Does it please you?' he asked. "'The way you talk of it does. I would sooner have that. It does me more good.' You always speak as if it's the subject of the moment were the one interest of your life. I wish you had a parliamentary career before you. He laughed. That, that is dangerously near satire, Renee. Really. Women only use satire when they want to hurt, and to hurt deeply, she said. I want to. She stopped, embarrassed. What? he asked. Her eyes fell before his. She made a pretence of eating. Jane entered with the next course. They discussed the weather until she had retired. "'What could I do to make your life happier, Renee? he asked. A futile question, yet men will continue to put it. "'What can I do to make yours happier? That is the all-important point to me.' "'Nothing,' he said in a low voice. "'This is the happiest time of my life.' "'There is nothing I could do beyond asking you to dinner?' "'Nothing,' he repeated. "'If there were, I should tell you.' "'You have only to ask,' said Irene. "'Woman could say no more.' There was a short silence. Hugh understood, yet did not divine. The inner man fell at her feet, blessing her for her sweet graciousness of surrender. He was fine enough to perceive that she was grateful to him for restraining expression of the love long known to her, and that her words were meant to relieve him of the obligation to which he had bound himself.' but it was divine and tender charity. Nothing more. It was her way to reward royally out of proportion to services rendered. Life is a queer tangle, he remarked after a while. The art of unravelling it is the art of living, but one must hold the master-thread. The master-thread is work, said Hugh, forcing his tone to lightness. No. What is it, then? She did not answer. A little involuntary sigh fluttered her bosom. "'I wish I could put you back into your bright circle, renie he said, putting his own interpretation upon her mood. With Harroway's words fresh in his memory, his heart grew heavy. "'Yes, I miss my friends,' she replied absently. The talk dropped a little. She stayed with him while he smoked his cigarette, and then they went into the drawing-room. Hugh drew her chair to the fire, set a footstool for her feet, and placed a cushion behind her head. She thanked him, shyly, trying to keep back a rush of thoughts. Gerard had never done such a thing for her in his life. Suddenly tears came into her eyes. Hugh bent over, in some concern. "'My poor Rini!' She smiled as she wiped her tears away. "'The past sometimes hurts,' she said. "'But the present is healing it, Again their talk languished, strangely lacking spontaneity. The breath of a new influence was hovering round them. At last Hugh rose to go. "'You look so tired that I won't keep you up any longer. God bless you for what you have said this evening.' She turned her head aside quickly and began to tremble a little. He could see the flush rising on the sweet contours of her temples and losing itself in the shadow of her hair. "'Then you did understand?' she murmured. "'Yes, but it was the angel and not the woman that spoke,' he said, rather huskily. "'Besides, I could never ask you for what I do not feel myself free to accept.' She turned and faced him, looking him bravely in the eyes, while the flush flamed into scarlet. "'You will never think as other men might think.' Her insinuation flashed for the first time through his mind that she was urging him to marry her for social reasons. Good God, no, he said. Don't speak of it. A moment afterwards they parted, and Hugh rushed down the stairs, with his temples buzzing. End of chapter 18 Chapter 19 of Idols by William John Locke This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers Chapter 19 Her divine and selfless nature had made the offer. He had unequivocally refused it. The incident was therefore closed. Ostrich-wise, he hid his head from its consequent influences in their relations, and regarded them as non-existent. That was the humorous aspect of his moral attitude. On the other hand, he believed in himself and in his strength of will to withstand temptation. He knew that Irene was too strong and proud a woman to desire marriage with him as a social rehabilitation. In fact, the thought had insulted her. He could not conceive that she loved him, wanted him for her own sake. As for himself, he could set his teeth and deny the heart hunger. Should she speak again, he would disclose to her the fact of his marriage. He hoped that no necessity would arise. Some weeks passed. They saw each other frequently but there were many little flaws in the frankness of their intercourse to which he wilfully blinded himself there were times when a chance sweetness of look or phrase set his heart beating madly when also a chance wistfulness in her manner brought him back vividly the full meaning of harroway's offer and made him curse its futility after a while she appeared to grow less cheerful she would regard him with a little tender air of surprised reproach which he attributed to the weariness of her lot One Saturday night they walked from Bedford Square, where the Cahusacks lived, to Hyde Park Corner, before they took the omnibus for High Street Kensington. In spite of the bright evening they had just spent, the walk was singularly silent. Towards the end she leaned on his arm, feeling tired. Involuntarily he drew her closer to him, but the constraint grew greater. In the omnibus he asked her whether she felt downhearted. She alleged a headache. His ready sympathy sprang to her. Why had she walked all that distance? To see whether exercise would remedy it,' she replied. "'Life is weighing upon you, really,' he said, as he parted from her at her door. "'It is you, a little,' she answered. And the stone staircase was not too dimly lighted for him not to perceive once more the curious, reproachful surprise in her glance. He went away full of passionate remorse for what he had brought upon her. Her life was crushing her, a desperate remedy flashed through his mind, a terrible temptation. Yet, keenly sensitive to that within him which concerned Irene, he perceived an ugly, leering selfishness beneath the surface, and he put the temptation from him. Meanwhile, the series of articles over the signature Delta had attracted attention. Her identity leaked out. A paragraph appearing in the literary notes of one journal, and copied by several others, revealed it to the general public. In these modern days, a pseudonym is as effective as a disguise as a jacket worn inside out. She was disturbed in mind, dreading publicity. Delta had become as soiled a name as Irene Merriam. Would not that lessen the influence of her work? Men would pass her articles by with a contemptuous shrug, and her appeals would be unheeded. To cry in the wilderness is task enough. To cry in a voice scorned by the few stragglers who hear would depress the Baptist himself. Then there came a day, shortly after her walk from Bedford Square with Hugh, when Jane brought her a gentleman's card bearing a name with which she was unfamiliar, and a pencilled legend—Women's Democratic League. She decided to see the visitor. A red-haired man with dubious linen and persuasive manners was admitted. She motioned him to a chair. He put his hat on the ground, and explained his mission. Her articles had been so appreciated by the League— he had been deputed to invite her to lecture on behalf of that body irene was gratified but alarmed writing was one thing lecturing another i am sorry to refuse she told the man but i have given up my little attempts at public life that is a great pity mrs miriam so many would welcome you back again do think over it we could promise you a most enthusiastic audience in fact we might scheme out a short tour all expenses paid and a handsome percentage on the takings. Your name would draw. You are mistaken, said Irene frankly. Besides. Oh, no, he interrupted quickly. Your name is so well known all over England, people would run to see you. Putting things on a commercial basis, so long as people come, their object doesn't matter. Then Irene saw. For a moment she gasped for breath. It was a calm proposal to make capital out of her notoriety. She rose and pressed the electric bell by her side, and turned upon him with flaming cheeks and anger in her eyes. "'How dare you!' she cried. The man took up his hat and broke into apologies. Jane appeared at the door. "'Show this person out,' said Irene. The democratic delegate retired ignominiously. Irene walked about the room, mechanically rearranging perfectly ordered arranged trifles in the feminine way, dazed with wrath and humiliation. A short while afterwards she did not know whether to rage against the abandoned cynicism of the proposal, or to laugh cynically at her own touching simplicity in the matter of her former mental disquietude. In the midst of her anger arrived Eleanor Cahusack on a flying call. Irene related the scene midway between tears and laughter. Mrs. Cahusac listened, sympathized, and, as soon as she reached her home, informed her husband of the insult that had been offered to Irene. And the next afternoon, Cahusack, meeting Hugh by chance in the strand, repeated his wife's story. An hour later, Hugh was ringing furiously at Irene's door. He found her sitting before the fire, with her writing-board on her lap. She raised startled eyes as he entered, laid his hat and stick on a table, and came to her side. She rose instinctively, leaving the board on the broad arm of the chair. "'Is what Cahusac tells me true, Rini?' he cried impetuously. "'About that scoundrel insulting you yesterday?' "'I told Eleanor something.' "'Why did you not tell me last evening?' "'What use would there be in worrying you for nothing?' she replied evasively. The light of the chandelier beneath which she was standing fell upon her averted face. The heaviness of her eyelids struck him. A crumpled ball of a handkerchief in her hand confirmed the betraying lids. "'And I come in unexpectedly, and find you crying. You would not have told me the cause of that, either.' "'I have no right to worry you,' she replied again. "'I wish to God I had the right to make you,' he cried passionately, goaded by the insult offered her, and by the evidence of her unhappiness. "'I don't think you do,' she said in a low voice. "'I?' he queried. Taking her by the wrist, he impulsively led her to the sofa and seated her by his side. "'This state of things cannot go on,' he said harshly. "'We are losing each other. I must explain. I will tell you about that woman, the one you know of.' Irene started away from him as though the words were a lash. "'Is she between us? I don't want to hear a breath of her. I won't listen. What is she to me? Let us continue in the old way.' "'We have come to the end of it,' said Hugh. "'Do you love her?' she asked fiercely. "'I have every reason to hate and despise her,' said Hugh, between his teeth. "'You know very well that I love you with every fibre of my being.' Irene held him with her eyes. A few seconds seemed an incalculable time. "'And you know that I love you with all my heart and soul. "'So why will you not take me?' she said slowly. He sprang to his feet. "'You love me like that?' The great wonder of glory that suddenly held his soul in awe shone from his eyes, dazzling and confusing the woman, whose own lowered tremulously. "'Like that?' he repeated. "'Say it again.' "'I have told you too much already,' she murmured. And then the woman's tears and tenderness all gushed forth, and she raised swimming eyes to him. "'Oh, Hugh dear, why did you make me tell you?' In a moment she was sobbing in his arms, clinging to him, yielding herself to the ecstatic solace. Half-shamed, she drooped her head and hid her face against his breast, and he held her tightly to him. Then there was a long, great silence. The woman's heart drank thirstily of the intoxicating flood of happiness. But the man's burned white-hot in the stress of agonizing conflict. She could not see his drawn face. His short, sharp breathing only told her of a emotion too deep for words. Its pain did not pierce through her bliss. Her fair hair rested contentedly against the molten furnace. Through such brief, fierce, soul-scorching fires come the tremendous decisions of life. "'Will you marry me, Irene?' he said at last. She moved her head for a moment like a child. Then she raised it and drew herself gently from him. "'Do you know why I was crying—a woman is a fool, Hugh, dear—when you came in?' "'Why?' "'I thought you did not want me. It was bitter, a turning of the tables.' "'Since when have you loved me?' he asked. "'I don't know. Always, perhaps,' she replied, turning away. "'It's a question you must never ask me.' "'How or when it had come, she knew not. What woman does?' Often she may point back to some spring morning of the heart, when love burst into blossom, and say, Then I knew. But she is aware that the petals had long lain delicately folded in the sheaths, and is dimly reminiscent of growth and expansion. To the how and when of that she can return no answer. But really looked back, and found strange tendernesses working darkly through all the years. Could it have been possible? her womanhood shrank, frightened from the suggestion, then tiptoed, with held breath, up to it again. The union of the two men in her affection had dated from the first day they had spoken to her on the P&O steamer, and it had existed continuously until one broke away, leaving the other untouched. Hugh's loyal love for her had been one of the inner glories of her life. She had felt it to be the compliment of Gerard's. So much was clear— But was her own affection for Hugh complementary to her love for Gerard? Could her feelings towards Gerard have maintained their homogeneousness without the other influence? Was it, in brief, an inextricable dual love? She found no answers. All was a mystery, like the colour of an opal with an elusive white of shame. Yet no thought of longing unsatisfied had ever tinged the purity of her wifely worship. There her soul was free from doubt. Yet again, on the other hand, Hugh had ever been inexpressibly dear to her. The cult of their idealized brotherhood had further fused these complex emotions together, thereby rendering the mystery more inscrutable. "'I can never tell you,' she repeated. "'Never. Oh, Hugh, dear, I've been so lost and lonely.' His arm closed protectingly around her. Forgive me, dear, she said. I once thought you were a weak man. Perhaps that is why I did not love you at first. But now I know that you are strong, and I need your strength. That was the deep keynote of her happiness. Once she had compared the two men, rock and shifting sand. Idolatry had inverted her vision. It had been shifting sand and rock. She was safe on the rock now. Often lately she had looked back in sickened wonder upon that idolatry. The whole of her true life with Gerard had revealed itself the dull taciturnity she had revered as strength, the ungracious compliances she had raised to tenderness or noble actions, the hundred faults she had transfigured to virtues. In vain she looked for one sparkling deed, one act of unselfishness, one spontaneous loving caress that she had treasured, even one proof of more than common mental attainment. In the very workaday business of life he had deceived her. His practice at the bar was worth little or nothing. She was stupefied at her own delusion. But now she was safe. Now she looked back upon Hugh's life, and saw it filled with innumerable deeds of devotion and loyalty. His brilliance in the world was a matter not of blind faith, but of direct testimony his heroism had not been potential, but actually displayed. Twice she had known him to face death, once to save his friend's life, once to save a woman's honour. Of the latter she was convinced, convinced also of his impeccability as regards the woman. On the part this creature had played in his life she was too proud to speculate. He did not love her, that was certain. It sufficed the hungering woman. The strong soul refused to seek further. Yes, she was safe. The foundations of her life laid on the living rock. The overwhelming happiness of it. She stood before him, radiant. A black silk blouse with frilled upstanding collar lightly caressing her throat heightened the glow in her face. He had studied its infinite variety of expression, and knew it in all its phases enthusiasm, anger, sorrow, gentleness. Today it was a revelation. To only one man in her life can a woman reveal the full glory of her soul and sex. The last shreds of his compunction were swept away by a mighty wave of pride. "'I would have gone through hell far to win you,' he said. She smiled, happily unconscious of his illusion, and replied in tender raillery, "'You have only had to go through the hollow form of asking me. Was it so hard?' "'I should never have asked you to marry me out of pity.' "'I knew that,' she replied. "'And now? Are you sure that you will be happy?' "'Happy?' he echoed. He laughed, walked across the room, back again, and ran his fingers through his hair. The happiness began to intoxicate him. He stopped before her and took both her hands. "'Do you know what a man's love is?' he cried. He paced his room that night in a hot fever of joy, with pulses throbbing and nerves vibrating. Irene's love was his at last, his for ever, to change life from an ill-weeded garden to glittering fields of an unimagined heaven beyond hyperbole of speech. To preserve the ineffable gift, he would take upon himself the burden of a hundred crimes. In this hour of rapture, the burden of the one he had resolved to commit sat lightly on his shoulders. She ran no risk. The secret of the marriage was safe. It had lain buried in the Brighton Registrar's office through all the lurid publicity of the trial. Minna would keep it beyond the shadow of a doubt. Anakasaba was bound body and soul to Minna. And then the crime was for the adored one's greater happiness. It would lift from her the crushing weight of social loneliness. It would flood her life with the passion of a man's worship. The vision of the full harmonious days to come rose up before him. He laughed aloud. There are times when a man feels strong enough to defy fate. End of Chapter 19. Chapter 20 of Idols by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 20. Minna had rushed to London, which she loathed, from Nice, which she adored and was occupying a suite of apartments in the Hotel Metropole. And the cause of her journey was Hugh, wherefore she regarded him with feelings of more than usual vindictiveness. His letter, announcing his marriage with Irene, had thrown her into a violent rage. She had stormed at her French maid, cast herself on her bed, and wept, and then gone off to Monte Carlo, where she did her best to compromise herself with an Austrian banker who had been, for the past fortnight, most assiduous in his attentions. The necessitous gentlewoman, whom, for strewed social reasons, Minna employed as her chaperone and companion, had chosen to be shocked. There had been a scene. "'My conscience won't allow me to pass such things by without remonstrance,' the lady had said. "'I don't pay you to have a conscience,' Minna had replied rudely. "'I possess one too many of my own.' "'It is an outrage on common decency,' said the lady, who had a spirit as yet unbroken by servitude." whereupon Minna had dismissed her on the spot, and that evening found herself unchaperoned. Now she had taken a little villa on the Simia's Road with a cool white loggia and tessellated floors. To live there in maiden seclusion was out of the question. To provide herself with the excitement that she craved, without some nominal protractress of her youth and beauty, would be to rank herself as unclassed. But she had not the faintest desire to set society's skirts tightly drawn when she passed by— as did many fair and solitary owners of pretty villas between Cannes and San Remo. Her dearly-won fortune could buy her much more satisfactory delights. In a word, a chaperone was essential. For a whole month she sought far and wide. She offered lavish terms, hundreds applied. But the ladies without conscience lacked influence. The influential chaperone seemed to be steeped in the crassest respectability. At last a paragon came within her horizon— a Mrs. Delamere, the widow of a Colonel of Artillery, a Woman of the World. "'In the course of an incidented life,' she wrote, "'I have found that discretion is the better part of virtue.' The distorted epigram had brought Minna post-haste to London. She came, saw, conquered. Mrs. Delamere agreed to deposit her conscience with her bankers, and to accompany Minna southward with the briefest possible delay. It was five o'clock in the afternoon— Minna threw herself down on a couch and turned over the pages of a novel. She had just returned from a solitary drive in the park, where she had not seen one familiar face. She hated London. It recalled a past life of miseries. The novel fell to the ground as she went over the tale of them, counted for the fiftieth time since her arrival two days before. She had seen no one but Mrs. Delamere. In a moment of utter boredom, a vestige of gratitude had suggested a visit to the Biebers but she could not face the ghosts of the horrors of that house. The sight of the dull, coarse, kindly faces would put back the hand of time and set her again among the devils. A faint backwash of the old hysteria met her at the thought. So she remained in solitary state in the gorgeous hotel, chafing at its dullness. Presently she rose and walked with aimless unrest about the room. She rang for her maid. "'Go downstairs and get me a couple of stalls for the Haymarket this evening.' the neat French girl retired with the order. Minna went to the window and drummed against the pane, gazing abstractedly at the busy embankment crossing just below, the train creeping over Hunkford Bridge, the flaring posters against the Avenue Theatre. "'How hateful everything is!' she said to herself. But she remained by the window for occupation's sake. Then Justine, the maid, entered. There were no stalls. They had telephoned. If mademoiselle would like a box— "'Oh, yes,' said her mistress, irritably. "'That'll do.' She had invited Mrs. Delamere to dinner and the theatre. An irrational impulse of politeness had caused her to leave to her guest the choice of entertainment. Mrs. Delamere had expressed a desire to see a much talked of piece at the Haymarket before her expatriation. Minna had a foreboding of depression. The umpire, or the gaiety, would have better suited her mood. Also a bottle of champagne afterwards in the company of some amusing men." as the prospect interested her but slightly. She had characteristically delayed to get tickets till the last moment. She looked at her watch. Half-past five. She waited by the window until Justine returned with the box-tickets. "'I'll come and dress,' said Minna. "'It'll be something to do.' "'It is true that one does not amuse oneself in London,' said Justine, answering the implication. "'It is the most odious place on the earth. I sigh for Nice.' "'I also, mademoiselle, but Nice will be dull when we return. "'We'll shut up the villa and go to aix les for the Russian season.' "'I adore the Russians,' cried Justine, with conviction. "'Have you known many?' asked Minna, sarcastically. "'When one knows one thoroughly, one knows them all,' said Justine. The soothing charm of a long and protracted toilet, enlivened by Justine's somewhat intimate account of the one Russian whom she knew thoroughly, beguiled the time— and restored Minna to good humour. When she left Justine's hands, adorned in the most fascinating of parish dresses, with her diamond star in her dark hair, and looked at herself in the pier-glass, she was almost happy. She was young, and, to most eyes, especially her own, captivatingly beautiful. The ravages that the past ordeal had made in her beauty had been repaired by time. Her lips were as ripely pouting, her dark eyes as slumberous, her lazy lids as sensuous as when she had first deliberately woven that glamour around Hugh long, long ago. Furthermore, she had ripened into maturer womanhood. "'Mademoiselle is ravishing,' said Justine. Minna sighed. "'And to think that it's all going to be wasted tonight positively wasted. Mademoiselle will command the admiration of the whole house.' Minna laughed contemptuously. "'What would be the gratification of that?' "'It would please me enormously if I were in place of Mademoiselle,' said Justine. "'A little later, Minna descended with her guest to the great dining-room. "'Mrs. Delamay was a faded, aristocratic-looking woman, "'with an aquiline nose and a perfect taste in dress. "'She looked at her charge critically, "'noticed her unabashed and somewhat inviting acceptance of admiring glances, "'and imperceptibly shrugged her shoulders. "'Rather than linger in the Bloomsbury boarding-house,' where for the past year she had been hiding her fallen fortunes, she would have undertaken to chaperone the unmentionable person of Babylon herself. Meanwhile she intended to enjoy her dinner. The crowded room, the buzz of conversation, and the expensive wines completed Minna's sense of content. "'I am glad that you prefer champagne extra sec,' said Mrs. Delamere, after the first appreciative sip. "'So many women go for verve glicot when they can.' Yes, and make men afraid to dine with them, said Minna. I felt sure that your taste and mine would coincide, yet I had to educate myself up to it. The education will not be thrown away, said Mrs. Delamere. Men are beasts, said Minna. There is scarcely one who can stand against an appeal to his own little pet sensuality. But there is no amusement or excitement in life without men, and so it is worth while studying their sensualities. Mrs. Delamere assented with a polite gesture. Do you think I am too cynical for my age? asked Minna in her languorous voice. Age is a matter of experience rather than of years. Well, too cynical for my experience? Mrs. Delamere pursed her thin lips in a smile. Some experience brings cynicism, some again brings truth. It all depends how you are affected. But what is truth, to quote Pilate? asked Minna. I haven't found it either in myself or in anyone else to weave the most gratifying tissue out of lies. That's the end of life. If I shock you, you'd better tell me at once, Mrs. Delamere.' "'You look far too charming for any one to be shocked at you,' replied the chaperone indulgently. "'Thank you,' said Minna, in high good humour. Mrs. Delamere turned the conversation to the Cosmopolitan Society of Foreign Watering Places. She had a wide experience of men and things, and talked amusingly. Minna compared her approvingly with her prudish predecessor, and congratulated herself on her choice. The talk was so edifying that they lingered over their coffee, and when they reached their box at the theatre the first act had begun. Except on the stage all was dimness. The stalls, the dress-circle, glimmered vaguely with the pale spots of faces and the broader splashes of light dresses. Minna sat on the stage side of the box, and Mrs. Delamere opposite. The act failed to interest the girl, whose champagne-filled head craved amusement. Her nature, too, instinctively rebelled at earnestness of purpose and the suggestion of ideals. The foreshadowing of tragedy in the play depressed her. Her own soul was too dark to bear additional gloom with ease. She yawned, rested her elbow on the edge of the box, and looked fixedly at the stage, while she saw her own life, and pitied herself greatly. She was alone. Anna Cassaba had died suddenly three months ago. Now she was friendless, save for this paid woman next her, whom in her heart she despised. She brooded over her wrongs, over the last great insult her husband had heaped upon her. How she hated him! How dared he marry! Considering her passionate repudiation of all claims upon him, this was unreasonable. But if men and women were always guided by reason— Life will be as emotional as the binomial theorem. At last the curtain descended. The theatre sprang into light. Mrs. Delamere broke into well-modulated enthusiasm. She praised the acting. "'It all seems wooden compared with the French stage,' replied Minna, pausing in the act of raising an opera glass. She turned, scanned the movements in the stalls. Suddenly she dropped the glass on her lap and remained staring and grew very white." "'Take my salts,' said Mrs. Delamere, quickly rising. "'Look there,' cried Minna, unheeding. "'There he is, standing up.' "'Who?' "'Hugh Coleman. "'The man who,' said Mrs. Delamere, with tactful opposing pieces. Minna recovered, flushed, bit her lip angrily. She had almost betrayed herself. "'He gave a shock to see him,' she explained, forcing a smile. "'The last time was in such painful circumstances. The trial—' my poor father.' Mrs. Delamere nodded sympathy, and looked with curious interest at Hugh's handsome face and haughty bearing. "'And there is the heroine of his romance with him, Mrs. Miriam. I know her by sight.' "'They were married a month ago,' said Minna, studying her voice. "'They were both friends of yours, I believe.' "'He was,' said Minna. At that moment she saw his eyes, which had been idly wandering round the house.' Fixed themselves with awful suddenness upon hers. Instinct warned her of the danger of putting Mrs. Delamere on the scent of a mystery. She made Hugh an unmistakably cordial bow, to which he responded with grave courtesy. Then he sat down beside Zyrini. The conjuncture of the parties in so celebrated a trial did not pass unnoticed. A whispering here, followed by a glance, an opera glass levelled there, indicated to Minna the fact of their recognition. Exaggerating the danger, she summoned the box attendant, and, borrowing a pencil, scribbled in German upon a bit of her programme, "'Come and speak to me, to save appearances.' The note dispatched. She awaited events. Hugh sat down by Irene and hated to meet the love and trust in her clear eyes. It was the first time they had appeared together in public since their marriage, the first time either had been to a theatre since his arrest for Israel Hart's murder.' It had been a small event in their lives, enjoyed in anticipation, and up to now enjoyed in realisation. They had held hands, lover-wise, during the act, under cover of the darkness, signalling emotions by little finger-pressures. He rode on the full tide of the path's month's wondrous happiness. Now and then his mind wandered to the sheltered haven on the sweet Cornish coast, where the all-fulfilling days of their honeymoon had been passed, where the woman, shyly revealing her inner tendernesses, seemed thereby to regain day by day the colour of her cheeks and the serenity of her brow. And his thoughts flew forward to the journey home, to the strange new fact of not parting at the door, and walking back to his lonely rooms with his heart aching for wild impossibilities. He had risen with a laughing speech. "'I am going to delight myself by seeing how inferior all other women are to you.' And then his eyes had met those of Minna fixed upon him like a fate." "'Strange we should see her on our first appearance,' said Irene. "'She's looking remarkably well,' he returned, realising and hating the banality of the remark. Then he was silent. Irene noticed a constraint. "'Never mind if it calls up cruel associations, dear. The past troubles have brought the present happiness. You must always remember that.' "'Could I ever forget?' he said. "'She has improved in looks,' said Irene, with a glance at the box.' The last time I saw her, poor thing, she was terribly pulled down. I don't think I ever told you. It was on the awful evening of the first day of the trial. She suddenly peered at our house, and, before she could speak, was stricken dumb with hysteria. We had to send her back to her friends. Strange, wasn't it?' "'Very strange,' said Hugh, in a low voice. "'What could have been the intention of her visit?' "'To confess?' He dared not share the agitation that the story caused him. He rose brusquely, with a desire to escape for a moment from the torture of his present position. Its falseness stung his impatience. A little bald-headed man, two rows of stalls off, who was looking with curiosity at the hero of the cause célèbre, suddenly met Hugh's glance, and curled up like a shriveled leaf into his stall. But Hugh had been quite unconscious of the bald-headed man's interest. "'Why don't you go and smoke a cigarette?' said Irene. As he turned towards her— he saw the tender, truthful love in her face, and he called himself a villain for deceiving her. But it was for her happiness indubitably. Still, the presence there of the other woman shed a ghastly light upon his honour rooted in dishonour, and Irene's simple statement of Minna's mysterious visit, whose baffled intention he could not but surmise, added a grimmer irony to the situation. Before he could reply to Irene, however, The attendant had edged her way to him with Minna's note. His brow darkened as he read the words. He could not refuse. Besides, Irene had heard the attendant's inquiry and explanation. "'I will go and speak to her, if you don't mind,' he said. "'Of course, you must,' said Irene. "'She will be glad to see you.' He looked at his watch. There were still ten minutes before the curtain rose. There would be time for a brief interview—the briefer the better." He made his way along the line of stalls, and ran up the stairs to Minna's box. She met him outside in the carpeted and quiet passage, and walked a step or two past the door of her box, so as to be beyond the earshot of Mrs. Delamere. She held out her hand to him with an air of contemptuous defiance. "'So you have committed bigamy?' she remarked. "'To put it bluntly, I have,' replied Hugh. "'You scarcely summoned me to give yourself the pleasure of telling me that.' "'Who knows?' said Minna, with an insolent upsweep of her lazy lashes. "'Have you anything to say against it?' "'Oh, dear, no. You got my letter, didn't you? You can have as many wives as the late Brigham Young, if you like.' Hugh bowed, ironically. It was like her to meet tragic issues with vulgarity. "'Tell me,' he said with a quick change of manner, "'why did you go to Mrs. Merriam's on that evening before the trial?' The question was so abrupt, and the incident for the moment so far from her thoughts, that she gave a little gasp of surprise, and the blood came into her cheeks. She drooped her eyes, stole a surreptitious glance at him, and, seeing his face very stern, hardened her heart, and laughed contemptuously. "'The thing got on my nerves, I suppose. You don't fancy I contemplated murdering you in cold blood. I thought your dear, true friend, Mr. Merriam, might help me. Wasn't I a silly little fool?' "'I am glad you had one moment of compunction,' said Hugh. "'I have sincerely repented of it since, I could assure you. "'But we need not talk of unpleasant things. "'All is for the best in this best of all possible worlds. "'I see you are amply consoled, while I—' "'And you?' "'I console myself too,' she answered insolently. "'He regarded her pityingly, was silent for a moment. "'Then he said in a kinder tone, "'Why speak like this?' "'I should be happy to feel that you had made an effort to save me, for I have judged you harshly. If you try to act loyally towards me, as I tried to act towards you, the fact will save us from hating one another.' "'Will it?' she echoed. "'My dear man, you can't possibly conceive how I hate you.' "'Very well, then. we we'll remain the best of enemies. Are you staying long in London?' "'Till the day after to-morrow. I am afraid I shall not have the pleasure of asking you to call on me.' "'I regret it extremely,' replied Hugh. "'And now that I believe the curtain is up, I will say good-bye.' "'Won't you sit through the act in our box?' asked Minna. "'It will be difficult to get back to your other wife.' He turned on his heel and walked away. She looked back at him until the curve of the passage hid him from her view, and then entered her box. With muttered apologies to disturbed store-occupants, Hugh regained his place by Irene she slipped her hand as before into his, and whispered a welcome. His grasp grew tight as his heart swelled within him. Oh, God, it was good to have her safe and secure! But the spell of the play had lost its power. When the curtain fell again, he was scarcely conscious of what had passed. It had fallen on a highly dramatic situation. Irene gave the little sigh of relieved tension, and turned to him, her face lit with the afterglow of kindled emotion. "'You are enjoying it, dearest?' he said. "'Oh, yes. And you?' "'I am beside you, Renee. That is all I want in this world.' The answer contented her. She whispered a foolish word, her head near his. Instinctively he raised his eyes to Minna's box, and saw her staring down at him, with the hard, ugly look upon her face that he'd known so well in days past. "'I'm afraid that poor girl is not happy,' said Irene, following his glance. "'Isn't it strange, Hugh, dear, that from the very first I always wanted to lighten her lot? What a meddlesome creature she would think me if she knew.' She drove knives into the man. In what estimation would she hold him if he told her his and that girl's story? He was no hero in his own eyes. In hers he day by day perceived, with an indescribable mingling of pain and pride, that he was. It was her nature to exalt any one she loved on a pinnacle of greatness.' He had married her, allowing her to remain in ignorance, honestly, according to his lights, for the sake of her welfare alone. Now, for the first time, he trembled for himself. "'Don't be sad, dear,' she said after a while. "'I can look back on it all so calmly, as if it had happened in a prior state of existence. And so must you.' "'Love is the God that works all healing,' he replied. And the sincerity of his faith comforted him. The object of Irene's pity soon withdrew into the shadow of the box, and plunged into flippant and bitter dialogue with Mrs. Delamere. The newspaper account of the scandal gave her scope for much mordant criticism of Hugh and Irene. It was a savage pleasure to tear their reputation to shreds, heap on invective and opprobrium, invent past meannesses and dishonours and treacheries. "'You seem to dislike him very much,' remarked Mrs. Delamere, smiling. "'Who wouldn't, considering his record of infamy?' replied Minna, her rich, deep voice turning, as it always did when she was angered, to harshness. A smile flickered inscrutably around Mrs. Delamere's thin lips. "'I don't know,' she said. "'I can forgive the woman. I should to think most women with whom he has come in contact have been ready to throw themselves away upon him. He is a splendid-looking animal.' "'Do you think women are beasts like men?' "'There's not much to choose between them,' replied Mrs. Delamere. "'The last act began. Mrs. Delamere gave herself up to the stage. Minna leant on the edge of the box and brooded over the two figures, side by side, just distinguishable in the chequered dimness of the stalls. When the piece was over she hurried her companion out of the theatre and parted from her at the door. A cab quickly took her to the Metropole. She went straight into her bedroom and ordered a small bottle of champagne and some biscuits, "'which she consumed while Justine aided her to undress. "'Has Mademoiselle well amused herself?' asked Justine. "'Don't chatter in that irritating way,' said Minna, snappishly. "'So Justine concluded her operations in silence, "'and retired at the earliest opportunity. "'Minna wrapped her dressing-gown around her, "'and lay back in her chair, "'with the last half-glass of champagne beside her. "'And gradually the sensuousness faded from her face,' And her eyes grew haunted by trouble, and her lips worked nervously. Thus she remained rigid, save for her lips and swelling bosom for a long time. At last, in a vehement whisper Yes, I hate him, she said. End of chapter twenty Chapter twenty one of Idols by William John Locke. This Librivox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers Chapter twenty one For a while the sun of his happiness declined, and the shadow of his danger rested upon Hugh. But presently it was noontide again, and after the manner of men he forgot the danger. The months passed and grew into years, and a wonderful joy came into Irene's sky and lit with a new worship her love for Hugh. But Minna lived in the gloom of a disastrous life three years had passed. Her high-heeled shoes came down with a click upon the tiled floor of the loggia at every swing forward of her American rocking-chair. As Mrs. Delamere's nerves had been tried of late, she rose, after some wincing, and prepared to enter the drawing-room. Three years' chaperonage of Minna had brought their wear and tear upon the system, and Minna's character had decidedly not softened. They had, however, remained excellent friends, and had formed a cold, cynical attachment to each other. The pulling-up of a carriage in the courtyard below drew Mrs. Delamere to the balustrade. "'If you are really going to Monte Carlo, you had better make haste, or you will miss the 10.55. There is the carriage.' Minna stopped her rocking, and lay back in the chair in a lazy attitude. "'I wish I hadn't told Boise I would come.' "'So do I. He's a bit of a cad. Won't do you any good to placard yourself about with him?' "'Because he tells improper stories.' "'On a fortnight's acquaintance,' said Mrs. Delamere. "'Well, he's the only man I have met who can tell you them without making you feel bound to blush. Blushing is a nuisance. In fact, everything in the world is a nuisance. I wish I were out of it.' "'You would scarcely find your way to a better one,' remarked the elder lady suavely. "'Who knows,' said Minna, "'this is pretty bad. Here all the virtuous are deadly dialed and despise me. All those who seek me out and amuse me are vicious and vulgar.' "'I hate the sight of Boise.' "'Don't you think you'd better spend a quiet day here for a change? "'Send a telegram to Boise.' "'Oh, Lord, I should go crazy if I sat here doing nothing all day. "'It is punishment for my sins, I suppose.' "'Do as you like, my dear,' said Mrs. Delamere. "'Only if you go, keep your wits about you.' "'I command the services of better-looking animals than Boise "'if I want to compromise myself,' retorted Minna. "'He looks as if he came out of the Bournemarché.' "'But he'll give me the best déjeuner in Monte Carlo.' "'It is getting late, mademoiselle,' said Justine, appearing on the loggia with an anxious face. Minna rose, sighing, and followed the maid indoors. A short while afterwards Mrs. Delamere saw her charge, attired in a daffodil yellow dress and a chevy straw hat, a wilderness of bows and flowers, drive off, buttoning her long gloves. "'She's overdoing it she murmured to herself, as she kissed the tips of her fingers to Minna. "'She will be wearing her diamonds in the daytime next. I am glad I am not a disappointed Jewess.' The Vicomte de Boissy, a short young man with a small curled black moustache, a bad mouth and somewhat dissipated eyes, dressed in a striped flannel suit and carrying a gold knot malacca, met Minna as she alighted on the platform of the pretty little Monte Carlo station. He welcomed her with many compliments. She was ravishing. He scarcely dared hope she would do him the honour, even after her note had arrived. When he saw her descend from the railway carriage, he was dazzled. Minna looked at him with a little curl of disdain. Mrs. Delamere was right. He was a bit of a cad, and among such had her lot fallen. A tall, clean, high-bred Englishman passed her by. He reminded her of Hugh. "'Women are fools, aren't they, Monsieur de Boissy?' she said, as they emerged from the lift, and were walking across the square, bright with shops and cafés, towards the great white casino. "'But I suppose you settled that for yourself at the age of ten. "'Moi foi mademoiselle,' he replied, "'there is no folly in being gracious to the most humble of your admirers.' "'Oh, I wasn't at all thinking of my coming to lunch with you to-day. You need not flatter yourself.' He pleaded for mercy, adroitly turned the conversation, touched upon the scandalous chronicle of the place and made her laugh. They strolled through the building to the gardens. The weather was a perfect Riviera march, the grounds gay with bright dresses. Now and then an acquaintance passed, generally masculine and foreign, and bowed low to her, at which times her companion drew himself up and put on airs of importance, which Minna's half-closed eyes were shrewd to notice. At last she grew weary of walking. She asked him sharply whether they were ever going to lunch he overwhelmed her with apologies, conducted her back through the casino and across the square to the Hôtel de Paris, where he had reserved a table. There, amid the popping of champagne corks, the cosmopolitan chatter, the sparkle of the scene, and the griveau gruit of her host, Minna threw off her sarcastic mood and jested recklessly. She was only capable of enjoyment now when she had had a little champagne in her head. It was natural that he should make love to her, with all the vulgarity of a cheap conqueror, Minna was used to the game. It pleased her to practice her arts of seduction. She knew that the caressing languor of her voice intoxicated the listener. He was the latest of innumerable wayfarers to whom she had held out the charmed cup. That she despised him added cynical zest. Besides, her own blood was stirred. A wanton woman does not turn men to swine for the mere fun of seeing them pigs. Boissy was in the slough of delight. His bad little face coarsened. His lips grew thick, his cheeks puffed up towards his eyes. He suggested a satire debased by a civilized ancestry. In his mind he was already bragging about his conquest to his friends. "'I wish I had dared entertain you in a private room,' he said, leaning over the table. "'You would have sacrificed a great deal of gratification,' replied Minna. "'Ah, we should have been alone.' "'You would not have satisfied your vanity,' said Minna. "'You know that very well.' He protested. He was burning with adoration. She was cruel, like all her countrywomen. You've had enough good fortune for one day, I consider, she said. Ah, then, can I hope? That's a thing forbidden to no one, she replied, looking at him through her eyelashes. They had sat long over the meal. She expressed a desire for the open air, and they strolled again together through the wonderful gardens. Behind them rose the great white palace of the casino. Its marble balustrades and stairs and cupolas gleaming amidst the gorgeous vegetation. In front, the cobalt blue Mediterranean meeting afar off the violet sky. On the left swept the fair Italian coast; on the right rose the black crag of Monaco, with its palace guarding the russet roofs of the little old town. Beneath them, terrace after terrace of greensward bedded with riotous profusion of flowers, broken by white parapets and flights of stairs. The scent of exotic flowers hung sensuously on the warm air. "'It is intoxicating light wine, or your beauty,' said Boise. Minna shrugged her shoulders and glanced idly around. "'It's a pretty place, but one gets tired of it, as of most things. What's the time?' "'Half-past two, he replied, consulting his watch. "Missus Delamere will be there by half-past four. Then she could dismiss Boise, of whom she was growing weary.' "'Shall we sit down? One talks better.' He indicated a sheltered seat behind some great aloes and led her thither. Minna commanded him to amuse her. "'I am too much in love.' "'Then tell me the history of your last grand passion.' "'I have only had one in my life.' He began to plead. Somehow the charm of enticing him had pulled. He was such a vulgar little creature. She had heard all he had to say scores of times she craved originality. The sublime conceit of the man who was growing earnestly amorous moved her disdain. Unscrupulous and conscious of degradation as she was, she nevertheless set a great value on herself. So she found entertainment in scathing ridicule. At last he lost his temper, threw his arms roughly round her, and kissed her. She struggled from him revolted, and struck him with all her might in the face. The brutality of the debased Gaul was aroused. The crimson mark flared across a livid cheek. Mad with rage, he seized her wrists. "Hello," said a sudden voice. "'Drop that.' A great, huge-limbed Englishman, dressed in loose tweeds and a discoloured straw hat, stood before them. Boissy rose to his feet and struck an attitude. "'Monsieur,' he began. But the newcomer took no notice of him. Instead he looked with an air of startled recognition at Minna, and then lifted his hat. "'Miss Hart, I believe.' surprise was great. She regarded him for some moments rather bewildered. He seemed to have dropped from the sky. "'Mr. Merriam!' She collected herself quickly, Rose, extended her hand. "'I am so glad to see you again,' she said, with an air of sincerity warranted by the occasion. "'Can I be of any service to you?' "'Oh, no thanks,' she replied lightly, and turning to Boissy, who stood by, fuming, "'I have the pleasure of thanking you for a most agreeable afternoon.' With a bow, she dismissed him. He saluted with as good a grace as he could, including Gerard in his salute. But Gerard kept his hands in his pockets and watched him move away. "'What the deuce was he trying to do?' he asked. "'Make love to me, I suppose.' "'Somewhat fiercely. I had just struck him across the face.' "'Are those the habits of these parts?' "'Oh, no. We are tame, as a rule. I have just been lunching with him in the most civilised way.' "'Perhaps I intruded,' said Gerard. "'By no means. You came just in time, like the hero in a melodrama, to save maiden innocence from the clutches of the villain.' "'May I enjoy the hero's privilege of consolation?' "'Within moderate limits?" she said. "'I shall not be taking you from your friends.' "'Oh, no, I don't expect my friend, Mrs. Delamere, who lives with me till half-past four. Till then I am a waif. Shall we sit? or no, let us find a place somewhere else.' They walked together to the terrace below, and sat down facing the blue glory of the sea. On their way thither she began to explain her presence in Monte Carlo. Nice had been her winter quarters for over three years. Her little villa was charming. If Mr. Merriam happened to be a niece and would call at the Casa Bonadatta, Mrs. Delamere and herself would be delighted to see him. Minna used her chaperone frequently as a stalking-horse of respectability. I shall be glad to come, said Gerard, with an appreciative glance at his companion. I only landed in Europe yesterday after a long absence, so I haven't found my bearings yet. Where have you been? Until lately in South Africa, hunting and gold mining. Then I satisfied a schoolboy crazed to see Madagascar. I don't want to see it again. Was down with fever most of the time, and took the first messagery steamer to Marseille. "'Then I thought I would put in a week or two here before facing the wretched English spring.' "'So you've been gold-mining?' said Minna. "'Yes, pretty successfully. Came in just before the boom.' "'Made a fortune?' "'I've cleared a tidy bit.' "'And you've come here to dispose of some of it?' "'At the tables?' "'Not much. I'm not that sort.' "'I'm afraid I am,' said Minna with a little sigh. "'Do you win or lose?' he asked. "'Last year I lost six thousand pounds.' This year I am winning. That's one reason why I live in these parts. The tables are a necessity to me. Monte Carlo, Ecliban, Estend. That's my usual round. Don't you get rather sick of it? Minna looked mournfully out to sea and clasped her hands in her lap. A pathetic attitude, somewhat out of harmony with the daffodil toilette and the unblushing hat. Pleasures would be tolerable were it not that one has to live so as to enjoy them she said, after a pause. "'You have come by your pessimism early in life,' he observed. "'I've not had much to encourage optimism, as you may be aware, Mr. Merriam.' "'You had a bad bout, of course. So did we all,' said Gerard. "'But you've had time to recover.' "'What are you going to do with your money?' she asked. "'Oh, I don't know. Buy an estate in my own county, Norfolk, and settle down to squiredom." breed-stock, and preserve pheasants, and that sort of thing. "'Would you be glad to get back?' "'I suppose so. Everyone is, in a way. Wouldn't you?' "'I loathe England and all that it contains too much,' she said with bitterness. "'And I can't understand your wanting to return, either.' The first allusion to past events was followed by a short silence, during which each took mental stock of the other. The circumstances in which they had met had led naturally to a false assumption of friendliness. Now each was abruptly reminded of the very distant acquaintance that had existed between them, and of the strange part each had played in the other's life. Minna's expansion had been due to gratitude to him for having affectionately rid her of Boissy, and to the novelty of talking to a big, lumbering Englishman. Realising, however, who he was, she shrank within herself. A queer, cold touch which she could not explain— pressed around her heart. She had felt it before. Once, on the night, three years ago, when she'd seen Hugh and Irene at the Haymarket Theatre. She moved slightly away from him with a sense of dislike. And yet his blunt, indifferent manner of speech pricked her vanity. He'd thrown an admiring glance neither upon herself nor her costume. He should pay her some kind of homage whether she disliked him or not. "'It's funny, my tumbling upon you like that,' He remarked at last. We generally choose dramatic moments for our interviews, said Minna cynically. Yes, by Jove. The last one seems a long time ago, doesn't it? Not to me, said Minna. But then you see, I haven't been gold hunting at the end of the earth. I've been living rapidly round a roulette board. I suppose you know that the mystery of my poor father's death was cleared up. I saw it in the Cape papers. I was very glad. There was another pause. Minna broke its discomfort by a casual allusion to the beauties of Monte Carlo. "'You have nothing like this in South Africa,' she said. "'I wish we had,' he replied. "'If things were always as jolly as this, I should never want to get out of Europe.' He stretched himself out in a comfortable attitude, and looked contentedly at his companion. The talk drifted into generalities. Minna whetted upon him her satiric knife, a process which he found himself to be enjoying." The Jew, moneylender's daughter, the rather common and silly little girl, whom he once despised, appeared to him in a totally new light. She had developed into a beautiful woman, with a cynical knowledge of the world and an alluring shamelessness of speech. Her manner was that of the insolently luxurious demi-mondaine. Her great wealth transferred her to the sphere of the unassailed. In this dual interfused light, she appeared a woman well worth the study of an idle afternoon, She was certainly a change from the fair frailties of South Africa. The puffs and frills and ribbons of the daring daffodil costume struck an elementary note of sex. He began to forget that she had mopped and mowed at him like an imbecile when they had last been face to face. She was a new acquaintance. He found himself losing the brusqueness of his earlier words, and dropping into the turn of deference her languid beauty seemed to command. When she arose in the intention of going to meet Mrs. Delamere's train, and held out her hand for farewell, he offered his escort to the railway station, with the air of a man begging for a favour. Minna was amused, somewhat interested. The originality of the situation gave a Philip to her mood. She assented graciously, and they proceeded through the casino grounds. They arrived at the station a minute or two before the train. Mrs. Delamere stepped out onto the platform. Minna, with a strange man at her heels, was by no means an unusual sight, But when Minna introduced him as her old friend, Mr. Merriam, she arched her eyebrows involuntarily, and glanced at the girl, in whose eyes gleamed a spark of mockery. "'What has become of Monsieur de Bourcy?" she asked, on their way to the casino. "'Oh, Mr. Merriam told him to go and play,' laughed Minna. End of chapter 21